Welcome to Hospitals in Focus from the Federation of American Hospitals. Here's your host, Chip Kahn. The allure of rural life varies for its 60 million Americans. For some, it's the pace, while for others, it provides a strong sense of community. In some cases, Americans are drawn for a more manageable cost of living. But access to critically important healthcare services, especially hospital services, in rural America is an ever-growing problem. As the FAH recognizes Rural Hospital Week, November 14th through the 18th, it's a great opportunity to draw attention to the healthcare challenges faced by rural Americans and discuss potential solutions. Joining me today is Brock Slabaugh, the Chief Operating Officer of the National Rural Health Association. NRHA's mission is to protect the health care safety net for those in rural America, which makes Brock the ideal guest for this episode. Thanks for joining me today, Brock. Thanks, Chip. It is really good to be with you uh, on this program during this most important week. Let's start with the basics. Tell us about the National Rural Health Association's mission and describe how your efforts impact rural Americans, their health care providers, and those who set the direction for health policy. The National Rural Health Association, Chip, is a membership organization. We have over 21,000 members nationwide. This is a very diverse membership. We have not only rural hospitals, which is an important aspect of our operation, but also federally qualified health centers, rural health clinics, uh, we have all the state offices of rural health as members. Uh, we have state rural health associations. The clinical constituency group represents our clinicians in rural areas. So you can see we represent a wide swath of those that are working every day in our rural communities. Uh, just a bit of context. Rural areas make up about 80% of the landmass of the United States, but we roughly have only about 17% of the, of the United States population. The reason why that's important is because rural areas provide all the food, fuel, and fiber that power our nation. And access to high-quality health care is a requirement to keep those important resources available to all of those that live in the cities. So we look at this, and our mission is to continue to view this as an exchange between urban and rural. That, that equality, uh, health equity, as it were, needs to be maintained for all populations, including those that live in rural areas. And lastly, I will say that public policy has long disadvantaged healthcare and pro their providers in rural areas, uh, not by intention, but just by the unintended consequences of policy uh, that wasn't very well thought through for low volume providers. Brock, I know this mission is particularly personal for you since you spent the better part of your career working in a rural hospital and uh, grew up in a rural area. Tell us a bit about this experience and how it affects you and the work that you do at NRHA. Well, that's a great question. I grew up in rural Kansas, spent uh, all of my formative years uh, working in and around wheat farming, cattle, and uh, doing 4-H projects uh, in our spare time. When I went to graduate school, I became a hospital administrator and my ended up for over 20 years in a hospital in rural Mississippi. 
And um, it was one of the best experiences of my life, uh, living and working there, serving a really disproportionate share of individuals that are vulnerable in a part of the country that has many of the disparities that we come to understand as being uh, really present uh, in great ways in rural areas. And so, so that experience, trying to keep the facility viable and maintaining access to all of the people that lived in my community was, was really, every day, it was a struggle. Well, I can't imagine. From this firsthand experience, though, in, in Mississippi, what stands out right now as the most severe obstacles to providing the care in rural America as compared to the rest of the nation? You, you described the, sort of the underlying policy problems or began to head in that direction. Uh, so what are the current obstacles that just so stand out? Well, I think that we really mark the disparities that exist between rural and urban providers. And so it's the classic older, poorer, and sicker. So uh, I had a physician at my hospital in Mississippi, a dear man, great surgeon, uh, Dr. Field, who would say, we have a lot of old folks, po folks, and sick folks. And I think that when we look at the Medicare age 65 and older population, uh, when we look at incomes relative to those of our urban counterparts, and then we look at the complexities of chronic disease in rural areas, uh, especially in the Deep South and, and other parts of these sections of our country, we see the complexity of the care is so much greater than in the urban context. The other additional problem is that in the rural context, we don't have access to the social services that we take for granted in many urban communities that uh, help to mitigate some of the continuum of care issues that, that we find so present in rural areas. So things like transportation, post-acute care opportunities, uh, the things that are so present uh, in urban areas are not that present in rural communities. Then last but not least in this area of disparity is, and we'll get to this I'm sure later, is on workforce. And that is that we have far less numbers of practitioners in pr primary care in rural areas than we do in urban. So in the midst of this complexity of care, we have less uh, resources in terms of personnel to be able to deal with those very problems. And so it's a, it's a cycle that we, we really feel strongly about, and, and we're trying to steer public policy to recognize uh, these complexities and make sure that those are considered in uh, regulations and law that comes from Washington. Brock, obviously, uh, all of us have just gone through uh, years of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, the workforce issues, the issues of equity were exacerbated uh, during that process throughout the country, but especially in rural areas. Can you talk a bit about the COVID-impacted care in rural communities and what you are seeing now and, and how they can be addressed as we move forward? Well, Chip, uh, unfortunately, the COVID virus was beautifully designed to exploit all of the weaknesses of rural communities in terms of its population and resources. Part of the issue that we have to deal with is that those very chronic problems, obesity, hypertension, poor nutrition and diet, 
really combined with the virus to make mortality rates in rural areas compared to urban much higher. Uh, as a percent of the population, in terms of population statistics, uh, we're looking at probably about 100 uh, deaths per 100,000 greater in rural areas due to COVID than in our urban counterparts. The other unfortunate detail that gets lost sometimes is the disproportionate rates of COVID vaccination in rural areas. And so we are looking at many parts of the Deep South and in the Midwest, uh, with some counties having less than 20% of its population with at least even the first two doses of the COVID vaccine. So when you combine the complexities in the, the chronic disease burden, when you combine that with the lack of vaccinations, uh, we saw the, what the effect of that is really in terms of population and population health. As we go into this coming winter, uh, we're looking at the you know, maybe a, a trifecta of, of problems, influenza, COVID, and uh, the RSV virus for many pediatric patients are uh, could be really problematic as we as we head into the winter. So we're we're watching very closely those trends and certainly uh, advising our members in rural areas in terms of how to be able to uh, be on guard for that. You know the kinds of stresses we've been talking about are reflected in the fact that 140 rural hospitals have closed since 2010. But you know to your points about COVID, 25 of those have just have closed since the uh, start of the pandemic. Many other rural hospitals are teetering and have thought about or actually closed services like obstetrics and other specialties. How are communities and individuals affected by these disruptions, both in terms of healthcare and in terms of the economy of those communities? Well, Chip, that's a really important uh, note and one that's rather sad, actually. We've had 140 hospitals closed since 2010. These are in rural areas. And when we look at some of the data, it's really interesting. We looked at the potential closures going forward of the 1,800 to 2,000 rural hospitals that we have in the United States now. And we estimated what the vulnerable facilities are, we, we got to a number of about 453, which out of the 2,000 or so is about 25% of our rural hospitals at risk for closure at the moment. Out of that group, 215, 216 are at high risk for closure. This is a, a real problem for us and for our communities in two ways. One is access. So we're seeing that Unfortunately, the vulnerable hospitals exist within communities that are have very highly vulnerable populations. So what that means is many hospitals potentially could close where they're needed the most. It's because of those dynamics of older, poorer, and sicker that I mentioned a second ago that creates those pressures on the financial pressures on those facilities. The second issue, and you touched on it, I think it's really important, is looking at social determinants of health. We see those hospital closures creating economic disruptions. Uh, it's estimated by our friends at Oklahoma State University Rural Health Works that 20% of a rural economy is now 
basically due to healthcare and healthcare-related resources. You close a hospital, which employs most of the physicians, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants that live within uh, the rural area, close them down as employers, they leave. You're taking one out of every $5 in the community out of circulation, which only hastens then the further demise of these communities in terms of their economic vitality. And so we at NRHA feel that that we have to focus on the economic contributions that healthcare make. And not only that, but also in terms of keeping those individuals that produce all of our food, fuel, and fiber um, healthy and able to get access to resources and healthcare services that are local and convenient. We talk about funding, at least uh, during the pandemic, Congress did step in with needed relief. I know we were talking before we started recording, and you described, though, this relief, these COVID monies as a sugar high, in a sense. Can you tell us uh, what the implications of this funding has been and and what happens now uh, that the funding is either gone or running out? Well, Chip, that's a great question. So before the pandemic, the year before it started, 2020, we had the highest number of closures on record. That was 19. In 2019, we had 18 hospitals close. And once the pandemic hit and we had the relief that came through many of the programs that the um, CARES Act provided and and other pieces of legislation, uh, we had the issues of uh, provider relief funds. We had paycheck protection programs. We had many other programs that sustained these rural facilities during some very difficult times. And as you suggest, those funds were put into the circulation within these hospitals, and now they're coming to an end or have come to an end. And so uh, what we've seen since the pandemic has somewhat flattened right now, we are looking at volumes that are not returning to our rural hospitals. Uh, These volumes that sustain even the low volumes we had before are not coming back. And so um, so there's a a real financial stress that this is creating. And so we are active in Congress trying to bring attention to this problem, lest we find more hospitals closing starting in 2023. You know, to try to cope with these kinds of issues, uh, the Congress did take action. The creation of the new Medicare provider designation, Rural Emergency Hospital, sort of with such action. I know the intent is to preserve access to needed care in rural areas, but it comes, I think, with the inevitable strings attached. And it's just not clear how useful uh, it's going to be in terms of meeting community and patient needs. What's your view on the rural emergency hospitals designation and how helpful is it going to be to cope with uh, the kind of problems you just described? Well, Chip, uh, time will tell on the usefulness of the rural emergency hospital as it's uh, now being stood up. Uh, It's supposed to start statutorily on January 1st of 2023. Part of the other issues of that we're dealing with is states have to set up licensure and certification uh, programs in order to get the these facilities converted at the state level and be able to work on behalf of Medicare to certify them for payment. So 
we're not going to see like right on January 1st, a lot of uh, conversions, but this program does, I call them bedless CAHs almost. I mean, it's just all taking a small rural hospital and eliminating its inpatient capacity and then uh, converting the reimbursement formula to an OPPS rate plus 5%. Obviously, to anybody that's astute in terms of hospital reimbursement, um, that's not enough to sustain a rural facility uh, for sure. So what we're looking at is uh, then what, they, what Congress has provided is what they call the additional facility payment. Or, and this is going to be around a $3.2 million per year subsidy, as it were, to be able to sustain the gaps in coverage that exist within uh, this uh, payment arrangement. We don't know yet. With The University of North Carolina, uh, Shep Center for Rural Health, estimated about 68 rural hospitals in the first year or two uh, that would be more likely to convert. Most of those, the, the preponderance of those hospitals, 14 of them or so, were set in Kansas. So what we're looking at is in the western part of the state that has hospitals with censuses of less than one uh, average. This would be a program that might work in those instances where there is very little inpatient activity. I'll quickly add the interesting thing about uh, this program is this is coming on the heels of just getting done, getting finished with or the flattening of our pandemic. We saw during the height of the pandemic, rural hospitals that were overwhelmed with patients, they couldn't get them transferred up, up to their tertiary partners because they were full in dealing with some tremendous stresses on utilization. And so it's kind of an interesting dynamic now to be considering eliminating inpatient capacity during a period that we've just finished where the inpatient capacity was so vitally needed. So that's another planning issue that I think communities really seriously need to take a look at when they're evaluating a conversion to a rural emergency hospital. You know, there are some existing lifelines that Congress has thrown to a rural hospitals, particularly that are really critically important. A couple of them are being considered in the lame duck session for continuation. Both are key priorities of uh, FAH. One, I know you share, uh, and I know you share the su support for these, extending the Medicare-dependent hospital and the uh, low-volume hospital designations. Would you describe for us the importance of sustaining these programs in order to preserve access for so many uh, rural Americans and what these Medicare adjustments meant uh, to you when you were running a rural hospital? Chip, it's the, the problem with rural hospital reimbursement, as, as you might expect, is that the PPS system was created in 1983, and it really looked at treating high-volume facilities where you could spread out losses in your diagnostic-related group activity over more patients and then potentially uh, be helped in terms of uh, mitigating those losses. In a rural hospital with low volumes, these are not able to be spread out over a large number of patients. And so the, the vulnerability of rural PPS hospitals to these low volume issues is really high. So Congress created the Medicare Dependent Hospital Program in the early 90s, 1990, and 
This was an add-on to the, the, the standardized payments that were being received by hospitals to mitigate or to offset some of that low-volume uh, activity. In the early 2000s, they created the low-volume hospital program, the LVH, because, again, we had hospitals that didn't meet the Medicare-dependent hospital requirements. And uh, essentially, they expanded the program uh, later in the decade to where we have now about 650, 630 hospitals getting low-volume hospital adjustments. We have about 134 uh, or so Medicare-dependent hospitals nationwide. And I can say without doubt that if either of those two programs are not restored or reauthorized on, on December 16th of 2022, uh, when the current continuing resolution expires, we're going to see, without question, a number of hospitals over the ensuing year or two uh, close because these PPS hospitals are extremely vulnerable to this being ended. And that would just be a, a, a terrible blow to the communities that these hospitals serve. You know, we're also exposed in this lame duck regarding another area where we're in agreement with you and share your concern. We're asking Congress to waive the statutory pay-as-you-go cuts to Medicare reimbursements. This potential 4% across the board cut will affect the entire healthcare system, all hospitals and and other providers. But uh, talk to us a little about what it would mean to rural care specifically if we were not able to persuade Congress to uh, turn this around and, and put another place another moratorium on the 4% cut, especially when considering this patient de- demographics that you experience uh, in the rural areas that you discussed earlier. Yeah, Chip, this is a real concern for us. Um, just having the Medicare sequester, which was uh, in place for a number of years now, the 2% cut from Medicare reimbursements for all providers, uh, we're looking at $228.5 million per year taken out of pay for rural hospitals just on that alone. If we have the PAYGO implementation of the 4% cut starting January 2023, we're looking at an additional $900 million that will be cut over a billion dollars from uh, Medicare reimbursements to rural hospitals. With just the 2% sequestration, we're looking at 45% of rural hospitals operating on a negative margin. And that is excluding the relief funds that have been passing through hospitals over the last couple of years. So what that means is that Again, this is another stress in addition to the other items that I mentioned that will create the tremendous pressure on rural hospitals and their finances. And keep in mind, this is in the context of inflationary pressures of 8% or more. I've had many of my facilities say that the efforts of the many of the inflation is up to 20% in some cases. So these increases in pay, in wages, and in in other areas is just really creating a huge stress. And so this is what we are dealing with. And then we look at the market basket increase uh, that was just finalized in the final rule from CMS on the inpatient uh, rule was a 3.8% roughly increase in Medicare reimbursement for rural hospitals, which is just really not enough at all to cover the cost of the care that's increasing. And finally, Brock, I would be remiss if I didn't raise the potential impact of the midterm elections. 
uh, government is once again divided between the parties. What do you think this will mean for rural health care policy uh, heading into 2023 uh, and beyond? Well, Chip, it's going to be interesting. Divided government uh, has not ever been something that um, has been useful, at least in terms of getting policy done for rural providers. Uh, sometimes it's just always left to reconciliation bills and, and other tools to be able to get work done. But we think that if the Republicans you know, are in control of the House and, and we have a Senate that's either Democrat or Republican, uh, there are a number of priorities that we think that we can work effectively with both parties on in a bipartisan effort uh, to be able to things forward. The first is in the area of mental health care and substance use disorder. There's unanimity, I think, between the parties on those issues. Looking at re decreasing regulation and extending some of the flexibilities that were provided to us during the public health emergency, Keep in mind that program, uh, the PHE, extended a lot of telehealth flexibilities that, that we want to make sure continue past the public health emergency. Payment reform, we want to see things like necessary provider uh, for rural hospitals to be able to convert to CAHs, uh, the rural PPS hospitals converting to CAHs, and then the provider-based rural health clinic, uh, making sure that we update that as getting back to full cost reimbursement for them. One of the other areas that we're working on very hard and hearing so many complaints about is the 340B uh, drug pricing program. And obviously that's one that uh, many uh, rural hospitals are finding difficult, but we hope to get some cooperation in Congress. And then last but not least, uh, this Congress in the 118th Congress is going to have to reauthorize the Farm Bill in 2023. So we are already working toward our advocacy requests, uh, including supplemental funding for capital projects uh, in our facilities so that they have the access to the resources to make sure their physical plants are in good and, and in decent working order. Well, Brock, uh, this was just such a helpful conversation, and I deeply appreciate your joining us today uh, here and look forward to working with you and hopefully we can uh, overcome the kind of obstacles we discussed today and, and have a healthcare system that is equitable across urban, rural areas and, and basically to all Americans. Thank you, Chip. It really was good to be with you. And the National Rural Health Association highly values the contributions of the Federation of American Hospitals towards all our efforts to ensure access to care to all Americans, including those in rural areas. So thank you so much for your support and in the invitation to be here today. Thanks for listening to Hospitals in Focus from the Federation of American Hospitals. Learn more at FAH.org. Follow the Federation on social media at FAH Hospitals and follow CHIP at CHIPCon. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Hospitals in Focus. Join us next time for more in-depth conversations with healthcare leaders.